into Geek Elite Radio. Good luck. I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I kind of lost track myself. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? All right, Richard. So you're from Missouri. <laughs> I know where I'm gonna go with this? Is, oh no! Is Ebbing, Missouri, a real place? Um, no, it is. It is not. But um, I mean, the town looks so what real. What the movie will have you believe? <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, all uh, all cops in in Missouri are just uh, are are just racist guys, right? You know what's weird about that? Um, there actually was like a, I forget, it wasn't even that long ago. There was like a, uh, I forget what organization put it out or, or what group of people put it out, but there was like a travel band about people not going to Missouri for that specific reason. Oh, yeah, yeah. That happened after the, the oh, man, I'm so terrible now. It was that town that had the that the the gentleman was killed by the cops and they did the there was riots and stuff and all the uh like riot gear came out and like people were posting pictures and saying this isn't a third world country this is right here in the middle the of United America States or yeah. whatever. So I forget what the name of that town was, which is terrible cuz you know that's the whole point of you know terrible a terrible thing happened and we should remember but uh, yeah, I remember there was, uh, I think it was the NAACP put that out, said uh, Missouri is not a state to travel to at the moment because of certain race relation issues. Yeah, so I mean, that that, that is, you know, that is pretty crazy. Uh, you know, I have a feeling in the movie, they, you know, the director or somebody probably was just like, hey, I... I like the way this sounds and it does have a, you know, it has a good ring to the title. It's an interesting title. Three billboards outside. It sounds, it sounds pretty nice. It sounds a lot better than, you know, there's three billboards outside of Jefferson city, Missouri, you know, like <laughs> or three billboards outside St. Louis. Like, oh, it, I mean, like, I don't know. It just, it, it does kind of, you know, make it sound a little bit more appealing. And I think it also gives it that like impact that, you know, although we're, telling you that this is taking place in Missouri there is a you know larger potential that this could be taking place in any small town in America really you know yeah any small town in the bible belt or the midwest whatever you want to call it and yeah and i mean you got to expect that pretty much everybody's going to shorten the title to just three billboards <laughs> either way yeah uh but yeah, yeah. It, it is an interesting name and, and the fact that you bring up the the director which is uh Martin McDonough and yeah. he did in Bruges and uh, Seven Psychopaths. So uh, yeah, he's done a, a a few different movies too. I think right, like well, other those, than just those. I think he's no, those done, are, those uh, are the movies he directed. Those his big ones. Yeah. Oh really? Yeah. The only other uh, movie that he directed, I believe, is a short. Uh, let me find it again. Huh. Uh, yeah, called Six Shooter. And that was in oh. 2004. So 2008 was in Bruges, Seven Psychopaths, 2012, and Three Billboards uh, Outside Ibbing, Missouri, 2017. Now, he wrote some movies. Uh, it looks like The Pillow Man was a short that he wrote, National Theater Live, Hangman, Hangmen, uh, and then The Pillow Man again in, in 2018. I don't know. But, yeah. Oh, was- so that so... Oh, no, wait, that is weird. So... 
I was like, well, maybe if he did it as like a short and now he's writing it as a feature, but I think you said he was doing it as another yeah, it's uh, a, short film. It says it, the IMDb says short as well. Um, but I guess hmm. both, both of them are based off of a play of the same name. Maybe, maybe not. Interesting. So, uh, yeah, fast. not, not a lot of, uh, titles to his credit yet, but I have to say I do. I love in Bruges and seven psychopaths. And I liked, I really liked, uh, three billboards. I think, yeah, I got, I was going to say that makes me kind of want to go back and watch whatever that six shooter is just to see. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Back in back, back 2004. Damn. That was a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> it seems weird to think that the early two thousands were over a decade ago. A while ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's ugh, ugh, ugh. now, uh, Francis McDorman is, is, has won, uh, a few awards for this role already. She won best actress at the golden globes. And I believe at the screen actors guild SAG awards. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think you're right. And now have you watched this yet? Yeah, I've watched this movie. I thought it was, I thought oh, it was, okay, go- okay. I thought it was good. Um, I, I, I think that the interesting part about it is that really none of the characters are like, are respectable people except for maybe Peter Dinklage's character. Uh, yeah, like I, I, I can't really root for Francis McDormand's character, especially towards the end, and uh, Sam Rockwell's character is very despicable. I don't think we get enough time with Her- Harrison or Woody Harrelson's character. Woody Harrelson. Yeah, I thought that was very, it was very different. That's for sure to have him, you know, uh, die off in the middle of the movie. Yeah. So. You know, I don't know. It's really fascinating to me because this movie—I don't know—and that's going to sound, I guess, I don't know, contradictory or whatever. I guess I didn't know what I expected going into this movie, but at the same time, this movie was also not at all what I expected. <laughs> sort of sense, I know, but that's like the only way I could really kind of put into words like how I how I felt about this movie because. I've had a number of people that after I watched, I was like, hey, like, you should really go check this movie out. Like, it's a really good movie. And they were like, uh, no, like, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm really nervous about going and watching it because of, like, the fact that it deals with, like, rape. And I was like, okay, like, that's totally understandable. But at the same time, to be fair, it doesn't really deal with that. Like, no. that is a catalyst for events and in particular, and you know, in a, in a certain way, an inciting incident for these characters, but it it's never really the real, not real, but it's never really the full topic of the movie. And you you never, thank God, you never see it happen in the film, um, unlike the you know irreversible, which will just scar you for life because it's it's you know very uh, visceral in that that film. And uh, same with. You know, the- I, I, same with oh, the ahead. the girl with the dragon tattoo, like that part of that movie just really like turned me off for the whole movie. Just like it really did not need to be shown. I felt. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with you, and and you know I think that's one of those difficult things because, you know, it it gets into that question of like, is it okay to represent life and art and and all that sort of stuff and it's a very difficult topic at the same time. And I totally understand why everybody that, you know, or not everybody, but like a lot of people would have a big problem 
seeing that even in a fantasy based environment, like even in an environment of it being on screen for the purpose of communicating something, you know, like it still isn't going to make it easier for certain people to watch those sorts of things. So, uh, so anybody that's listening that, you know, is worried about that, it, it's not in the movie. Like you never see it happen. Um, it is talked about what happened, but it's never shown. That being said, though, there is still a good amount of violence that uh, unfolds in this movie in, in ways that I really didn't think were going to happen. And then when when they do, you're like, oh, my gosh, like that's uh, that's that's something else right there. Um, <laughs> I, I I don't know. I, I it's it's difficult because I, I disagree with you, I think, a little bit. I think there is a certain element to where you can identify with what uh, Francis McDormand's character is going through. But there are clear times where, in my opinion, she, she very much crosses out of being an identifiable protagonist uh, into an area where you, it is very impossible to identify with what she's doing or, or to condone what she's doing. Um, and at the same time, you're right. Like Sam Rockwell's character is, is a very, uh, I don't want to, I don't necessarily want to say disgusting character, but for the lack of a better term, like he's not a really good person. Um, but there is, I guess, spoilers at this point, or you know. Well, I mean, if they if they don't spoilers, know, yeah, exactly. They should assume that by now. Yeah, yeah, but uh, you know, there there's a a point that happens to where there's somewhat of the start of a transition into him potentially becoming somebody that's a good person. But but then at the very end, you, you know, you are presented with a situation of where you can kind of, you know, create your own dots to connect as to how the story really wraps up because it doesn't uh, doesn't completely give you the ending. So, you know, I think you could make the argument at the very end that, you know, one thing happens or another thing doesn't happen, you know, like, but for the most part, there isn't really a lot of people in this this movie that you're going to really feel super connected to, I guess. Um, but at the same time, there are moments that are, are, are super, super tragic and heartfelt. Um, like you said, for example, there, there's a part in the film where Woody Harrelson uh, dies. And that part was very, very sad. I thought, um, and there was another part. And, and this is just a, a in my opinion, a massive nod to, uh, Frances McDormand and why she's winning these awards because they're like, I, I don't think there's ever been a time where I've been in a theater. Like, first off, it's very rare that I even cry in the movie theater, number one. Um, but it's even rarer when you have an actor who can deliver a single line of dialogue so powerful that there's an audible gasp from everyone in the theater and then just, you know, a couple of tears leaking out of your eyes and, and Francis McDormand has that moment in this film. And, and I, I really think the acting uh, is very powerful. Like from, from pretty much, I think the entire cast that's in this just does an incredible job down from, you know, um, 
Sam Rockwell, Woody Harrelson, uh, even Abby Cornish's part, although not big, is is well done. Um, I forget the... Um, See, I didn't like Abby Cornish's part. I thought it was weird and out of place, and I really did not enjoy that character at all. I mean, I know I'm cutting you off, and I'm sorry about that. No, no, but, no, you're fine. But, like, the, 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 the massive age difference between Abby Cornish and Woody Harrelson, and they're playing husband and wife just it really bothered me yeah and i mean that's just a unfortunate thing of where hollywood's at right now though you know what i mean it's it's not really any different than like seeing you know tom cruise against pretty much any actress that's in any of his movies now oh no that's Um, absolutely true american made was totally weird just to watch that between the the portrayal of husband and wife in that movie but I would I would figure that this movie is a, would be a little bit better about that just the way that it's being handled and you know the the production of it. Well, I mean, I, I don't know, it is interesting because they make a pretty big deal about uh, age differences because even um Mildred who's who's the, you know, main character in this who's played by Frances McDormand, uh her ex-husband is dating like a 19-year-old. Yeah. Um and they kind of paint it off as, as you know, she's very ditzy and kind of stupid. And, you know, they're kind of very, they're, they're placating to the that, you know, there is this huge generational gap. And, you know, it's certainly there, I think, also between Woody Harrelson and, uh, yeah, who, but you see, know, they're, they're obviously doing that. They're, they're doing that with John Hawks and his uh, girlfriend's like uh, relationship. They're, they're playing off the generational gap where, I mean, I would assume that the the gap is just as big for Woody Harrelson and Abby Cornish, and they're playing that off as a sincere relationship. Now, obviously, you can't, I, I can't sit there and say that, uh, you know, two people that are of consenting age can't love each other just because they're separated by a lot of years. But it just, to me, it just seemed very awkward and out of place. Yeah, I mean, uh, like, I I don't disagree with you. I mean, that's the other thing that's very interesting about the way that this script is written that I I enjoyed, actually, is that it's the dialogue that's in this is, it feels very human. It it doesn't feel like your stereotypical script. Like, it has a lot of those weird random moments where people say stuff and you're kind of like, wait, what? But, like, that stuff happens in everyday life. And, um... I think that's one of the elements of this movie that I actually really, really enjoyed is it wasn't just kind of this stereotypical, straightforward type of, of story through the dialogue. And I feel like that's even kind of the interesting dynamics that they were kind of showcased between the two of them uh, was just, you know, And I, but again, I could totally understand why a lot of people are also going to see that and be turned off. As well as kind of how unconventional the dialogue in this film seems, at least, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that makes sense uh, completely. So, uh... so what about you, though? Like, was there anything? Because I know you said you kind of didn't really like the age gap. You didn't really kind of like um, that there was nobody really to identify with or you felt like maybe you couldn't identify with them. Was there anything about this that you liked a lot or that you enjoyed uh i mean i have to say that uh i did enjoy the movie but like i said the last half hour of the movie i would say is the part where i had the most problems with it i just didn't like the way that most of the characters started to change um i did like 
Caleb Landry Jones, the actor Caleb Landry Jones. I think his character was pretty awesome. Yeah, he played uh, Red Welby. The uh, he was like the billboard uh, marketing manager type thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, obviously the the character arc that he has of going from you know just a guy who who's trying to make some money and you know whatever way possible to even though Sam Rockwell's character just like beat the crap out of him, he still was willing to help him out in the hospital bed that was i mean that was touching yeah and out of everybody in the movie like you said i think uh peter dinklage's character and uh uh, caleb jones character is is definitely the two that are probably the most kind-hearted out of everyone that's portrayed in the film which is kind of interesting Uh, it's definitely an interesting approach but i feel like francis mcdormand is kind of like the representational embodiment of like things everyone wishes they could do in like those grief stricken moments of anger, you know? Um, yeah, no, you're right. I think that, uh, definitely plays out in the whole, uh, fantasy realm of this is what, uh, I, I, these are the things that I wish I would do to the people that wronged me to the people that pissed me off. Yeah, because, I mean, there's, like, a part where she's pulling up at, uh, I'm assuming, a high school to drop her son off, and someone throws, like, a, a can of soda, and it hits the car windshield, and she gets out of the car and, like, walks over, and, like, there's this minor of a of a high school kid that's sitting there, and she straight up kicks him in the dick, and then <laughs> uh, turns around and looks at the girl standing next to him, and is like, do you know anything about the soda can? And she's like, nope, and so then she just, you know, kicks her in the genitals also, and, you know, there's no, uh, none of the parents try to get involved or stop her. Like, no, nobody really says or does anything. You know, the cops don't show up and try to arrest her for that. Like, there's just literally zero repercussions to those actions. Yeah, I think you're, and you're, you're hitting it on the head. Like, I, when I saw that, I was like, okay, yeah, you can't strike a child, especially one that's not yours and not expect there to be some kind of repercussions or consequences for something like that. And she does. She literally goes up and just kicks a kicks two children in the pelvis area that are not hers. And yeah, you would have cops everywhere and, you know, people like that. But then I also maybe think of like how all these I don't know, baby boomers love to talk about how you know, when I was in high school, if I were to have done something stupid or bad, you know, not only did I get uh, disciplined by my parent, but my teachers did hit me, and then every every parent down the street would hit me, and everybody got their licks in because that's the way that we grew up. And it's just like that's I think I feel like that's what they were trying to throw out there uh, with that little bit of like. Oh, well, out here in the Midwest, we still raise our kids right, and it's okay if someone else disciplines our child too. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember being in school and, like, acting up and then my science teacher just walking over and punting me in the nuts. Like, yeah, happened all the time. And then he just looked looked at me while I was on the ground puking and would be like, laces out. And then I'd be like, what does that even mean? Um, (laughs) uh, No, yeah. There is a, you know, it it is remarkable because there is a lot of things, like, in this film that are, are very heavy subject matter 
and it's dealt with well. But then there's other times where the movie feels more like a dark comedy um, than a serious drama. So like it's a very weird blend of of those two things. Yeah, and I think what we see like uh, Martin McDonough does does well as you see in in Bruges and Seven Psychopaths and now this movie is that all the characters really feel fleshed out and uh, feel like real people. Like um, the, the guy who works for the billboard company that brings uh, Francis McDormand's character, uh, the backups to her billboards because uh, for whatever reason, I forget, I didn't even remember who it was that burned down her billboards in the first, in the first place. It was her ex-husband. Oh, that's right. It was her ex-husband. Yeah. Uh, again, she thought it was Sam Rockwell's character, but for the one time, he actually didn't do something terrible. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, what a what a foreshadowing of of events for him, right? Because you're, you know, there's a moment where I thought like, oh, well, is he the one that was responsible for what happened to her daughter? Like, is that what he's so upset about? Then it's like, you know, was he the one that set the billboards on fire? But then even the billboards being on fire and burning kind of ends up being a foreshadowing for him because she goes and sets the police department on fire while he's inside of it. And, of course, then you start to see the character shift and change in him where he's in the police station reading a letter that Woody Harrelson's character left for him, basically telling him, you know, quit being a screw-up. Like, you actually have a good heart and you can make a change and a difference in this world. And so, you know, he finally realizes that the station's on fire and what does he choose to do? He chooses to save her daughter's case file and, uh, you know... Of course, he ends up getting brutally burned and scarred by uh, Francis McDormand, Mildred's character's actions. And so it, it, it is these these kind of weird changes. But it's like you said, I, I think that's one of the most enjoyable things about this movie is, is that every character doesn't feel like a perfect film character. They feel very real, very human, very flawed um very emotionally impacted and and that's a thing that we know about emotions is whenever somebody's angry they're not thinking clearly they're not thinking the way that you you know should be and there's a lot of actions in this movie that kind of show the negative side of acting before thinking which i i, I thought was another element of the movie that i really enjoyed and uh speaking of characters that are real I mean, I don't know, necessarily know how real this is, but I did think it was a interesting characteristic that they had for Mildred's son where, you know, he is super excited to see that his father is coming around. Like his father shows up and he's like, oh, dad, you know, it's so cool that you're here. But the instant his father goes to uh, hit his mom, uh, he he's right there with a knife or was it a knife or a gun? I don't remember, but he's... He had a knife to his throat, like a kitchen yeah, uh, exactly. chef's knife. Yeah, so, I mean, he knows what, you know, the, the past that existed in his parents' relationship. And though he obviously still loves his father, he was willing to do what he needed to do to protect his mother. Yeah, and even that that sequence is just very, like, from one extreme to the other. You know what I mean? Like, it yeah. starts off one way, then kind of gets lighthearted then gets dark super fast then gets lighthearted again like 
This film is is definitely a roller coaster of emotions that you're going to go through watching this movie. Like, absolutely. Now, just like his, the 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 rape and murder of Mildred's daughter, it, it takes place before the movie starts. Before we we join into the situation, the other the other event that the movie constantly refers to that happens before the movie begins is the instant with Sam Rockwell's character um, allegedly beating and torturing a uh, handcuffed african-american prisoner i mean i don't or suspect is i guess the best way to put it and uh you know he denies that it happened but a lot of people refer to it so and obviously i would assume that the police force or sheriff's department or whoever um uh, uh determined that you know, what he did was okay or, you know, what was being said about him didn't actually happen. What do, what do you think? Do you think it happened the way that uh, the townspeople believe it happened? I don't know. That's a, You're right. That's a very interesting situation to look at within the film because, you know, when he goes into, um, uh, what is his name, Caleb, um, the guy who runs the billboard office, he, you know, right. he of course finds out that uh, um, Woody Harrelson's character is dead and he's very distraught about it. And he walks across the street because he's kind of holding um, Red Wellaby, who is the character's name. He's kind of holding him accountable because he was the one that uh, basically took the money and, and allowed the billboards to go up. So there's a moment where he walks over breaks the door, you know, his glass door to his office, breaks through that, walks up to the second floor, hits him a couple of times, busts the window in the office out, throws him out of the window, uh, goes back down into the streets, and as he's walking past him, well, and then he punches his assistant, like this lady uh, who's at uh, Red's office, he punches her in the face, and presumably knocks her unconscious, and then walks down to the stairs, walks outside, and then we see Red in the street. Obviously, there's a lot of other people that are watching, and he looks at him, and he's like, see, I don't just beat people of color either. So, like, he kind of does, and, and again, it's one of those things where, you're like, is it true because he's saying that, or is he saying that because he thinks that it's something everyone believes about him and he's just in this horrible emotional state? And, you know, that's that's the thing. We all are, are guilty of saying things that we would regret that are not necessarily true uh, when we're angry or, you know, upset or whatever. Uh, so it, it does lead you to kind of question what the parameters of that situation are. And I, I don't know, like... I could totally see his character doing that. Um, but then again, there's another scene where Francis McDormand uh, is trying to kind of goat him into doing something when they're in the interrogation room and she drops the N word and he is super fast to correct her and be like, no, you can't say that anymore. So I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of kind of like evidence on both sides of the fence to, to allude to the fact that he probably did something very serious. But then you're absolutely right. You're like, well, is it making more of a statement about law enforcement, about how they're turning a blind eye? Is that more of the social commentary? 
or was it really something that just got blown up into the public eye and and you're right we're never really given any truthful uh discoveries as to what that is and i i don't know i'm not sure because i could certainly see his character doing that based on the actions at the beginning of the movie yeah and i would say that that's what one of this movie kind of does or one of the things that it's it's really doing great and then it's also doing terrible like as a person that really enjoys story i i I'm upset that there's so many open-ended questions and, uh, you know, incomplete storylines, but then that's also one of the things that's being praised of this movie is that it's, it's so open-ended and, and, uh, you know, there's no definite answers. I mean, we don't, I mean, the way the movie ends, you've been alluded to it earlier, you know, they, they're on their way to go and take care of this guy who didn't commit the murder that they, dot that he did but he did do something bad so they're gonna take out their anger on him whether or not they do it when they get there we don't know because the movie cuts out before that but uh the same the same as can be said about um you know why is it that woody harrelson's character just couldn't put to put two and two together of what happened to mildred's daughter and then this new police chief that comes in the sheriff or whatever he's supposed to be you know you really get this feeling that he's going to come in and clean things up and figure things out, but it, it doesn't quite work out that way because it's, I mean, that that's kind of a trope of, a, of other movies. It's not what's happening in this movie. Everything is kind of like, well, you know, we live in a gray world. We live in places where we don't get all the answers, and that's what this movie is telling us. Yeah, yeah, this, and that's what I mean. Like, this, I could totally see why it's being praised for that because it just, like I said, even with the dialogue, the characterizations, the relationships, everything just feels very real and very flawed. And, and you're right, like, we do get kind of stuck in that mindset with, with narrative that everything has to be tied up every loose end has to be closed uh, in order for the the film to end or whatever you know uh, and, and so I think that is a luxury that we tend to lean on as as film goers or as audience members for films whatever you want to call it uh, and, and it is weird and it does feel a little out of place when a film doesn't do that when a movie says this is the story these are the characters but there are certain things that you just will never know, and that's just a fact of the movie, very much in the same way that it's a fact of life. Um, yeah, and it's very, it just feels very different. Um, I don't want to say it feels good or bad. I think that's going to come down to how you as a viewer take the movie, but, but it is going to feel, I think, very, very different than movies most people are used to watching. Hmm. What what did you think about the the cinematography of this movie? I really liked it. Um, the deer, the part where the deer comes up to the billboard was a little weird. It felt like that was computer generated, which baffles me as to why we still haven't, you know, we can make Transformers look real, but we can't make a deer look real. And maybe that's just because we know what a deer really looks like. I don't know. Maybe they didn't have the budget to, to do that or whatever the case may be. But uh, that was a little weird to me, just that moment and the way that moment was kind of filmed um but outside of that i i i enjoyed the cinematography to this i i thought they did a lot of really interesting shots with fire specifically um surprisingly there's also a more fire in this movie than i would have ever imagined going into uh, the theater 
yeah. But but overall, I, yeah, I, I definitely liked it. I thought it was really good. Um, I don't think so. Oscar nominations are out, and I don't think this was on the list for cinematography, though. But I could be wrong. I don't. I don't think it was either. I just wanted to get your opinion on it in general. Uh, to talk about that deer, though, I mean, yeah, I yeah, there was some CGI used, but there was that was an actual deer. Apparently, it was uh, Becca, the white-tailed deer at the Western North Carolina Nature Nature Center. Yeah, uh, I, I assume they just they filmed her in front of a green screen and then added her into the movie. So. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, maybe it's just the lighting didn't match up or whatever. But, yeah, that looked beyond uh, fake. Like, it looked uh, really, really bad. I was trying to think of that movie with um, – what's the movie with Clint Eastwood where they had the fake baby? He, I think oh, he directed uh, it. Was it American Sniper? Yeah, American Sniper. Oh, man, yeah. This is, like, on that level bad. Like, you see it and you're just like, <laughs> what is going – and maybe you're right. Maybe it was just the, the lighting if they if they chrome-keyed it or something. But it definitely does not feel like a connected part of that shot. Like, it feels very weird. Right. No, I, I'm right there with you. And as much as, like, I – as much as I think the cinematography is good, like, there's also nothing – that really stood out at me as being like phenomenal if that makes any sense but i think it also makes sense to be that way because i feel like that's just the movie in it of itself is it's just supposed to feel very kind of grounded and and in a grounded in absurdity if you will it's very uh starburst commercial over here I mean, I I I did say that you you're, you're absolutely right. I I felt like it does feel of a lot of the movies I've watched lately, it does feel the most real. And I would I would say you have to give that up to the cinematographer for doing that. I, I would assume. Yeah, I mean, oh, excuse me. Yeah, I I you know I I think there's obviously a a color palette that's that's selected and used to the, and, and they're used very, very well. Um, there's nothing that I, I don't recall seeing anything that was like extreme angles or anything like that, that would kind of take you out of it. And yet at the same time, like it's almost like editing, right? Like if you notice the editing, then it's not really good editing um, because it should be invisible and, you know, cinematography is a little bit different because it's the forefront of the visuals of the movie. But when you're doing a film like this, I think if you would have had, you know, this kind of over-the-top cinematography style for the movie, I don't think it would have matched what the rest of the film was. So you want to – do you know the cinematographer, Ben Davis? Um, Not by name off the top of my head anyway. So check this out. Um, he is also the cinematographer for Doctor Strange, Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, Before I Go to Sleep, Seven Psychopaths, Wrath of the Titans, The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, The Right, The Debt, Kick-Ass, Stardust, Hannibal Rising, Layer Cake. I mean, that's a lot of different types of movies all, all around there. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, uh, he's definitely illustrating his skills of diversity, which is wonderful. 
Because I mean, and and I think that's the other thing too is like if you're working in film nowadays, odds are you're gonna work on a superhero movie. It's true. I mean, like it's (laughs) just becoming one of those things where it's like probably inevitable that you wouldn't do that at this point. Okay. Uh, Was there anything else you wanted to say about three billboards? I don't think so. Uh, I would say that we both seem to enjoy it. Let's move on to another movie that I think we both enjoyed quite a bit. The Shape of Water, Guillermo del Toro's newest movie. Ooh. What did you think about this movie going into it? You know, I got to be honest. Like, I'm I'm a really big fan of Guillermo del Toro's work. Um, So... I think I was already like super, super hyped for this. First off, when I saw the first trailer for this movie, I just instantly fell in love with it. I mean, like it, and I don't know, this might sound kind of uh, pretentious or whatever, but like in watching the trailer for this movie, like it instantly felt like a movie I would make, or at least a movie I would be incredibly in love with making, if that makes any sort of sense. Um, and I gotta say, it I I have been trying to like stay away from trailers, um, you know, not like watch them over and over again, and you know, avoid like the foreign trailer and the you know third and sixth trailer, and then like the red band domestic trailer because they you know there's so many different iterations of like trailers and stuff nowadays uh, that you probably could piece together you know at least sixty to seventy percent of all movies through trailers nowadays. It feels like maybe even more. But with this one, you know, I did watch the trailer quite a few times and I I already was super, super hyping it up because it was, you know, Guillermo del Toro's work. And I got to say that made me nervous going into the movie because I'm like, oh, man, I have screwed up. I have overhyped this movie. It is never going to live up to any expectations I could ever possibly have for it. Uh, and yet it does. It, it did, and it exceeded the expectations that I had going into it. Um, but what about what about you? Uh, I, I kind of was in the same boat as you. I, I I would say that I really enjoy all the Guillermo del Toro movies that I have seen. Now I haven't seen all of his movies. Uh, I know Pants Labyrinth is something I, I've never seen, and uh, I should go and correct that. But I was uh, I would say that I was very intrigued when i saw the trailer for this i was like i i mean to me it was when i first saw the trailer i was like oh this is awesome you know guillermo's doing another uh you know genre fantasy-esque movie and uh it's it's probably going to be something very interesting i love the production design aesthetic that comes in this movie this whole you know mid-century um vibe that it has the whole 50s vibe and because uh, I, I I don't know I just I just really like that aesthetic I think it goes to that whole um, Bioshock <laughs> theme you know uh, uh, Bioshock and um, uh, Rapture and all you know I don't know what's what's that what's that one TV show that came out not too long ago it's about the people living on a spaceship I, it doesn't matter uh, anyways I just I just really I really dig that that design look. So when I saw the trailer for this movie, I was really, really intrigued. And then you go to the cast, 
and you have Michael Shannon, Richard Jenkins, Octavia Spencer, Michael Stubarg, Doug Jones. Like every one of these people, I love their work, everything that I see them in. And then you have the the main actress, Sally Hawkins, who I've never seen before. I know you've seen uh, Blue Jasmine, right? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think I've actually watched that. Oh, I thought that was that. Oh, that was the warmest colors blue. Blue is uh, the warmest color. Yeah, I have oh, yeah, seen okay. that. Yeah, that no, I w- that she wasn't in that. I just I just got the names mixed up. Uh, I guess she was in Godzilla. And I remember watching that movie, but I remember not liking it, so I don't remember her. Uh, but other than that, I really, I really, ha- I've never seen anything. Joyed and I don't remember her being in there either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, she has a lot of credits to her name, but I, nothing that I've seen. Uh, other things that are very prominent as of now is Paddington and Paddington Two, which I didn't see either one of those, so. Uh, I, I'm sorry, Miss Hawkins, that I don't know your work, but you obviously, obviously, she did an amazing job in this movie. Um, she, for a character that doesn't talk, she carries the whole film, you know, with her actions, and that's that's phenomenal uh, what she does in this movie. Yeah, I I have to say I completely agree with you. Uh, it is incredibly remarkable, like that she's coming into this movie as a, I would argue a relative unknown and yet delivers this incredible performance without really using her voice at all. I know there was a a couple of times where she, or a a scene, I wouldn't say a couple of times, there's a scene where, you know, she does sort of speak and, and kind of has this daydream of a uh, musical that kind of unfolds. And that scene alone, that scene is so great because of how it it's juxtapositioned against the rest of the movie that's super dark and, uh, I mean, not it's not dark in tone, but dark in actual lighting and, and stuff like that. And the fact that, you know, this that, that scene is so upbeat and they're dancing around and you know that Doug Jones is in that suit and still moving the way that he moves, it, I don't know, the, everything about that scene is so great. Yeah, no, uh, this movie, I don't know, it it really blew me away. And even though it's kind of set in the 50s, again, it goes back and it it has a lot of strong social commentaries about, um, you know, where we're at with racism, uh, sexism. Uh, There's a whole moment in there that's very indicative of the uh, Me Too and Time's Up movement where, you know, Michael Shannon is kind of sexually harassing Sally Hawkins' character, who is voiceless, but yet she obviously becomes a dominant force with him, not just uh, not just a victim to him. Um, you know, uh, sexuality in general is a huge thing in this, you know. Uh, and, and, I mean, all of those things were relevant in the 50s, and obviously it's it's a good time period to kind of show that we have progressed a little bit. But I think, you know, obviously there's still a tremendous amount of, of work to be done across all of those fields. And one of the things that I would point out is the same thing, right? Like, I was at this theater, and I don't know how it was at the theater you were at, but, like, being in the theater... There's a, a very diverse group of people, but most of the people in there are older people. And yet 
when the so the movie kind of starts off and within what would you say the first 10 to 15 minutes it 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 shows um Sally Hawkins yeah Eliza's character uh in the bathtub out of focus uh, masturbating and like mm-hmm. when that happened there was this this wave that went through the theater of like oh and like weird nervous like adolescent laughter from all of these people that are not adolescents um and to me it's like that just shows how much farther we need to go with normalizing uh human and more specifically female sexuality like there shouldn't be any reason that we can't see that on screen and handle it like adults um and yet here it is uh proof and proof and proof of of the hundreds of people that are in the theater that we're just not there yet um which you know like that's the interesting thing behind this movie though is it's it's yes sexuality is a part of of being human but this this whole movie is just this massive ode to um I feel like Guillermo del Toro's love for monsters, Guillermo del Toro's love for love, um, and his love for for cinema in general. You know what I mean? Like, there's just it, it, and then there's that combined with like all of the dynamics of different types of love within the movie. And I think it's just a really profound film that's multi layered in all of these different structures of what love is. And it's saying that all of these structures are okay, you know, and that they should be normalized, that we shouldn't vilify these things or view them as wrong or evil or whatever. And I think that's another reason that it's uh, it got nominated for, I think, more Oscars than any other movie this year. I think it got nominated for, like, 13 Oscars. And I think this yeah. is part of the biggest reason why. Like, it, it, it's that. It's got a, somewhat of a diverse cast. Um you know, but but and there's you know the writing is great, the cinematography in this is absolutely breathtaking, um, the production design, like you said, is is absolutely incredible in this movie. The makeup effects and the costumes and things like that that they did to actually create the amphibian man, um, yeah, like and, and just the way that all of the story is interwoven too, like how you see uh, kind of. Uh, Richard Jenkins' character doing the painting and the old style illustrations for this Jello ad, and they're like, you know, he's going back to get his job, and they're like arguing with him, like, oh no, no, like it's got to be uh, uh, green, can't be red, red's out. It's all about green, 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 which is like a huge palette of the movie. Like, there's just all these different shades of green that go through the movie, and yet the like shortly thereafter or a scene or two after whatever it is. Like, we cut back to that, and then it's, like, Michael Shannon and, like, his nuclear family house with his two little kids watching the TV, and then his wife brings in this green jello and sets it down. You're just like, oh, this is, like, so perfectly tied together. Um, like, that, and then the moment of how, like, Michael Shannon treats the amphibian man, but then how he also ends up treating Dimitri, I think is his name, the Russian spy. Right where you know there's that whole thing where he shoots him through the cheek and then literally fish hooks him through the cheek with his own hand and is like dragging him through the mud you know like that he's now no better to michael shannon's character than the amphibian man even though he technically should be because he's human they're both on the same level of treatment from uh, richard strickland aka michael shannon's character 
And even just like the visual storytelling of like showing the degradation of Richard Strickland through his disgusting gangrene-esque fingers um, like just that whole descent into darkness being visually represented through his fingers, I thought were, I just, it's all those little details like that, that I think are just marvelous and wonderful. And I think that's what makes this whole film stand out to me as uh, a modern day masterpiece of love, if you will. So, I mean, with that being said, do you, do you feel that uh, Oscars, Oscars come around, around it wins, wins best, best uh, picture? So here's here's the thing, right? This is the thing with the Oscars is it really has nothing to do with the overall merit of the movie. It has everything to do with the campaigning and the marketing and, you know, getting the, the foreign Hollywood foreign press and the voters to vote for your movie. Um does it well, have the Academy a... of Arts and Sciences? Not the oh, right, right. Process. Sorry, yeah, I was still on the Golden Globes. Right, yeah. Um, but like to get them to actually vote on it, and you know, I, I, I don't know. I this year is is a really good competitive year. I would say there is a lot of truly great films in the Best Picture category this 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 year. I I. I don't know. Are we gonna? We're not gonna do like an Oscar prediction episode, are we? Uh, I was hoping we would. We're hoping we would. Okay. So then I, I'm gonna leave it there. Then I'm gonna leave people hanging cliffhanger this uh, moment, so they have to come back and listen to that. Then. Um, right. Good idea. Good idea. I will yeah. say, obviously, it has been nominated for be- best picture, and I do wholeheartedly believe that it deserves the nomination 100. percent Let me ask you this. Going into the end of the movie, and I've heard it I've heard it two different ways. Do you believe that uh the amphibian man uh creates the gills for her? Or is that she was already an amphibian that was found on the beach at a young age and adapted to being human, and that's what those cuts on her neck are, and he just uh made her remember or whatever? Yeah, I mean, there's like you said, there is there is evidence to support both of those things. You know, there's a, a part where they allude to the fact that they found her like washed up next to a river. Uh, for me personally, though, I choose to I in the moment at least, and you know, maybe if I watch it a couple more times, I would change my opinion. But I choose to believe that she was a human and he healed her. Uh, that those were not initially gills, and that she forgot she had gills. Um, and the reason that I kind of say that is if they had been gills the whole time and he obviously was in love with her and she was in love with him, there was plenty of other opportunities and moments for her for him to expose to her the truth of who she was. So I don't believe that they were gills the entire time. I think they're very much uh, signs of abuse that they reference back to like her father um, and those sorts of things, you know, maybe her father was a fisherman, maybe he was twisted and cut those into her and took her voice box out and threw her in the river. I mean, there's a lot of assumptions that could be made. But I think for me, it to show the true, what I believe the true message of the mo- movie is, is to celebrate the diversity of love and that the diversity of love is okay. It has to be that she is a human because that's what really makes this such a diverse thing that it wouldn't only be 
capable of love between different sexes, but also through different quote unquote species, which is a, I mean, like, yes, that's totally weird, right? But it's meant to be symbolic, you know, and it's, it's, I really still think this is just a big love letter uh, from Garamo to monsters. Cause he's obviously been in love with monsters his whole life. He's made a career out of monsters. Uh, you know, yeah, arguably monsters, you know, have, have made his life better. Yeah. Listen to his uh, acceptance speech at, at the golden globes. He, I mean, it, it essentially has a lot of that when he, he talks about, you know, we all have a little bit of monster in us and we should embrace some parts of that. And, and the fact that, you know, monsters make us who we are. Yeah, and so I think, you know, within the context of the movie, yeah, I feel like it has to be that she is for me at least, and I don't I don't think everybody needs to think what I think, but for me at the at bare minimum, I I definitely believe that she was human and he bestowed upon her that ability. Um, you know, which isn't far-fetched because we see that he has obviously a healing factor of his own. He's able to, you know, uh help uh richard jenkins character start growing hair back (laughs) and uh, he fixes the cut that's on his arm so i mean there's definitely supernatural powers that the amphibian man is capable of doing um so yeah that's i don't know that's the choice that i i feel is the best served for the story but what about you what's your interpretation of it i honestly i believed that she was uh an amphibious uh, person and then just adapted to the land dwelling um, world. But now that you uh, that you put it in a way that you know her being human helps to bring the point home that you know uh, diversity uh, overcomes or love overcomes diversity or you know things like that race how what what say what say you uh, it does make for a better story so. Uh, I'm, you might be pulling me towards that that side of the 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 divide. I can pull harder. I can hook a fish hook in your mouth or, and, and yank <laughs> after you. After you shoot me in the cheek, yeah. After I shoot you in the cheek, I can fish hook and string you along. Let me uh, let me let me talk about that real quick. Well, not specifically that, but Michael Shannon's character. In the end, when he believes that he's getting the one up one you know getting one up on the amphibious man uh and he shoots him and then he realizes that it, it hasn't done anything he has the line where he goes oh you are a god and like in that moment so like such not not much is said but to me while watching it it really opened up my mind to the possibilities of what the what that character is going through at that very moment where he does he actually believe that or is he just saying that because he obviously shot it and it didn't die and uh which you know other animals you could like if you shot a a a cow with a low caliber you know gun you might might not necessarily die you know right am i am i right am i right with that well i mean yeah i mean uh it's i mean look at even humans i mean you have people that get shot multiple times and and don't die i think it's just the fact that like not only did he shoot him but then when he's like gets back up and walks over to him like you can see that that wound isn't here anymore right no i get that and that's what i'm just saying is that 
does he actually believe that at that moment? Does if he does believe it, does his mind opening up to the fact that there is something other than this, you know, Christian I assume that he believes in the Christian God because of the the setting it is and yeah, that's right. He says that whole conversation with Octavius Spencer, where you know he's like, "No, we're created in the Lord's image, man. and you don't think that's right. what the Lord looks like, do you? He looks just like you or me." And then he's like, "Well, you know, he obviously looks way more like me than you, but you know, he has right. that exchange with her." So yeah, the idea that you know, I think he does. I I think it's like I said, you know, he, he's not a great person either. Um, but that scene that takes place between him and the general where, you know, he's kind of pleading with him like, hey, look, I've messed up one time in my whole career. Like, please, please don't ruin my life. Don't ruin my family's life. Um, and I don't want to say that excuses anything he did or that he's not accountable for it. It, it doesn't, and he should be held accountable for his actions. But at the same time, I, I think he's in that moment of panic and survival and anger. And, you know, that's where we get back into that situation of like, well, people will do things, unfortunately, not think clearly or whatever when they're in a survival type situation. And I think that moment after he shoots him and knows pretty much what's going to go down, um, he has that moment of of clarity come back to him where he's like oh man i screwed up you are a god i should have been listening to the other people around me so to me i think it is a moment of clarity more so than a sarcastic final moment do you know what i mean yeah no i uh i i would say and that's i i i mean I say I agree with you for the most part. I just thought that that when I saw that part in the theater, it really, really made me think. And that's that's uh, something that I enjoy when I'm watching a movie. Something that really makes me ponder a moment in a movie. No, absolutely. And I think that helps to further kind of like what I was saying, where it's like this total realization of like, okay, no, 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 you are a god. And what's about to happen in a few moments where you bring this girl back to life and make her have the ability to breathe underwater, uh, like water world style. I think it also helps to kind of maybe convey to the audience a little bit more that, you know, yes, he's completely capable of bestowing upon her amphibious gills. I agree. I need to uh, I need to like find the soundtrack and I'd, I'd be curious to listen to the soundtrack because I I feel like I didn't really take in the soundtrack when I was watching it because I was being so uh, overwhelmed by the visceral beauty of this movie that I feel like the soundtrack kind of went over my head but I'm I'm very curious to go back and listen to it because there is a lot of uh, music in the film there's a lot of reference to like kind of like the golden age of Hollywood and stuff like that so I'd, I'd be very curious to go back and, and kind of listen to that too and uh, since we st- we talked about it I mean yeah I, I, I you already know me and I assume people that listen to this podcast already know me about how I feel about soundtracks and scores and stuff like that so uh, I mean it, it 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 was a great addition to uh, the movie but I I it was nothing that was stand out for me. So I, I, I would love to hear your thoughts when you do listen to it though. Um, but since we talked about it with the last movie, I wanted to say uh, the cinematographer on this was Dan Lawson. Lawson. I don't know if you've heard of him before or not. 
yeah, again, I I have heard the name, um, but I I couldn't put a movie to it, unfortunately. Yeah, which is fine. Uh, just looking at some of the credits on in his uh, IMDb, he's got John Wick Chapter Two, Small Town Killers, and then uh, and a whole bunch of others. But uh, one of my favorite movies is uh, Brotherhood of the Wolf, and uh, apparently he was a cinematographer on that. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. awesome. So. <laughs> uh and i i definitely see i mean he also did crimson peak which makes sense because that was guillermo's other movie or one of guillermo's other movies that's one of his few so, movies so I, I haven't watched so you haven't seen crimson peak i thought the interesting thing about crimson peak was that it was absolutely not what i was thinking that that movie was going to be about uh it goes in a another direction altogether I honestly thought that that was going to be a movie about vampires and yeah, that's not about vampires. <laughs> so, uh, it, it was an it was an interesting movie to watch. Um, now I, I, I do hope that, you know, this movie gets all the recognition that it, it can obviously with the, what'd you say? 13 nominations. Yeah. 13 Oscar nominations. It, it's going to it's going to be talked about quite a bit this this uh, season. So um, m- more power to it. Yeah, it was definitely one of the more enjoyable movies I saw this uh, winter. Yeah, I I'm still I still have a lot on my list to try to get through because I you know I, I think I've talked about it on the show before. I want to do kind of like my top favorites of 2017. So I'm trying to fit a few more in there. You know, just to be fair. Um, before I write my list, but but yeah, I, I have to agree with you. This is very high on my on my list of films for for 2017 that I really 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 enjoyed. Uh, all right, if anybody has any opinion on any of uh, either one of these movies or anything we talked about today, we'd love to hear from you. I'm on Twitter as at agent underscore of the underscore bat. Richard's also on Twitter as at Rycoen. That's at R I C O W N. And uh, the rest of Geek Elite Radio is at Geek Elite Radio on Twitter, at Geek Elite Radio on Instagram, Facebook.com forward slash Geek Elite Radio is our Facebook page, and GeekEliteRadio.com is our website. Check out archived episodes of this podcast and other podcasts on the Geek Elite Radio Network. Also, make sure to go and check out Richard's Twitch channel, where I believe you're playing uh, Mass Effect Andromeda right now? Yeah, we just moved on to uh, our first day of Mass Effect Andromeda last uh, last week. So uh, this Sunday, we will uh, we will be going into day two of Andromeda. So oh, I was just going to say Andromeda is the last Mass Effect game, isn't it? Yeah, it actually came out last year. So do you have something lined up for when you when that's done with? Yeah, so once we wrap out with Andromeda, um, I have a uh, couple of what I call open contracts, which are... Uh, so everything involving my Twitch channel is revolving around assassins. Um, so we call it, you know, putting a contract hit on a game. And uh, so I've had a couple of uh, regular viewers ask me if I would stream some Metal Gear Solid. So since I have Metal Gear Solid Phantom Pain on my PS4, I'm going to do that. And then I had another um, regular viewer ask me if I would stream Skyrim. 
And seeing as how I have not ever completed the actual storyline for Skyrim, I was like, yes, I will, because that is probably the only way I will ever be focused enough in a Skyrim game to actually <laughs> play through the story to see how it actually ends. Because, you know, as everyone else, I just spend all my time digitally hoarding a bunch of crap in Skyrim that I'll never <laughs> need and not doing any of the actual quests. So... So we got those lined up. Um, I've got another game that I want to get to really bad called Hellblade. Of course, um, I was also talking to um, Geek Elite Radio member Eric um, about a new pirate game coming out for the PC called Sea of Thieves, where you can actually have multi-crew pirate ships. And uh, we were talking about doing some dual streams with uh, my channel and the Geek Elite channel. So uh, definitely stay tuned and look forward to, to those as well, because that's uh, on the horizon uh, down the road a little bit. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what's in the pipeline for right now. Um, you never know. We might get some bonus streams with some indie games or something in there too, but uh, that's what we got for right now. Sounds great. And people make sure to find uh, you on your Twitch channel is uh, Rykoen1, the number one, right? Yeah, so it's just twitch.tv slash Rykoen1. Yep. And I think that's it for us this week. So uh, make sure to come back next week when we'll probably be talking about another two set of movies. <laughs> uh, but until next time, this is the Mitch and Rich Show on the Geek Elite Radio Network saying always remember to geek out. Geek out. We now return you to your regularly scheduled program.